Welcome to today's episode of Fire in the Belly. This is where we get to hear some pretty inspiring stories from some amazing people. You know, it's always an absolute pleasure to sit down, take time out and have a warts and all conversation about their journey. I'm always intrigued by what it's taken for people to get to where they are today. And hopefully in this interview, we get to hear some more about that. From this, my mission is to help people to find their own fire in their belly. And from that, to live the mightiest version of you. So without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy today's guest. Success is a process, not an event. Hello and welcome to Fire in the Belly. Today, Dave, I have myself, Mighty Pete, and we have the Dave Coombs. Good afternoon to you, sir. Good afternoon, good morning, good evening. Well, good day. <laughs> How about that? It's good to be here, Pete. <laughs> Listen, it's, it's fantastic. So to give our audience a bit of background, so... Dave Coombs is a songwriter, photographer, entrepreneur, and author with four decades of experience, writing over 120 songs and creating 14 albums of soothing, relaxing, instrumental piano music. His songwriting began with the now popular standard, Rachel's Song. His soothing, relaxing music has been played millions of times worldwide on radio, satellite, and all internet streaming media, and it comes to to touch the lives of millions of people all over the world. He is also the author of the best-selling new book, Touched by the Music, How the Story and Music of Rachel's Songs Can Change Your Life. Welcome to the show. It's awesome to have you on, Dave. Thank you so much for taking the time out today to come and speak to us. Well, thank you for inviting me. This is going to be fun and interesting and hopefully entertaining. Well, there you go. There you go. So let's start off with an easy one. What's your fire in the belly, Dave? Well, my fire in the belly, I guess, since I wrote Rachel's song, has been to spread my music as far and as wide around the world as I possibly can. Having written now over 120 songs, 14 albums of music over the past 40, 41 years, um, my mission now is to spread that music as far and as wide as I can because, yeah, it's true that millions of people have heard my music already, but there are billions of people who have not. And I know from all the letters and notes that I've gotten over the years, of which they number over 50,000, that my music touches people. And that's where the title of my my book came from, was uh, all these people that wrote to me to say how touched they were by my music. They didn't know me. I did not know them. My music has no words. It's instrumental. And yet it somehow deeply touches and moves people. So my, my really fire in my belly has to do with really get, keeping my music alive and out there and introducing it to as many people as I can. And my favorite medium these days is through podcasts, just like this one. Well, how, you know, when you get that music out and, and what does it do for you personally? What what difference does it make? Is it is it the is it the feedback? Is it just knowing that it's out there, you know, in, in the ether? What is it about it, Dave? I think it's the uh, the the feedback that I get and have gotten over the years confirms that it it really does make a connection between me and the person that's listening to it, and the degree to which it affects people in a positive and, and meaningful way is what really. Uh, is so special to me is uh, that connection and that affirmation of the the good that the music has been able to do. And, you know, even though I've, I've only heard from, you know, 50,000, it sounds like a lot of people, 
But in the scheme of things, 50,000 in the billions of people on the earth is, is not a lot. But still, if that's a good sampling, then I know from those that there are people who have been, they're hurting either psychologically or physically, and my music has helped relieve their pain or at least take their mind off of it to, to give them something else pleasant to think about. People that are stressed out, you know, I think we've, for years we've heard that stress is the silent killer. People with a lot of stress tend to have more heart attacks and, and other ailments that, that are not good for them. So anything to relieve your stress and, and help you calm down has got to be good for you. And so my music seems to do that. And so it's, it's, it touches all ages, too. I've had music that <laughs> little babies have been born to my music. I've had people depart this life to my music. You know, they've been listening to my music as they, they passed away. And everything in between, people getting married to the music, people enjoying the, my music on their vacations and trips with their family, little kids that are hard to get to calm down and go to sleep. I've gotten letters from people who said, well, I just put Rachel's song CD on and, and little, little Johnny just seems to curl up and just go right to sleep. No problem. <laughs> so, you know, there's all of those, uh, some touching and some funny anecdotal stories about how the music really does, in fact, touch people's lives. You know, it's, it's amazing, isn't it? The fact that the impact and the ripples it can make, you know, and as you say, for the people that, you know, for everyone that you hear of, it must be, I'll a guess and say there's a hundred or a thousand that you don't hear of more. Who knows, right? That's right. Mm -hmm. And you're saying you've been doing this over four, four decades? Yes. I wrote Rachel's song, the, the music to it, in, in uh, January of 1981. So that's what, uh, 41 years ago and, and counting. And uh, I was 33 years old when that happened. And I had grown up in a musical family around music all my life. I'd been active in, in church music and with the choir. I'd been a choir director before. <clears throat> and I, of course, played the piano. My, both my parents played the piano. My grandmother Combs, she played music. And, and all, a lot of my friends were musical. <clears throat> so it was something I just grew up around all of, all of my life. And it wasn't until I was 33 years old that I wrote that first tune. And I didn't really sit down to write it. I, if, for those of you watching the podcast, there's a piano behind me here, my, my Steinway grand piano. But I love to sit down at my piano in the evening when I was working during the day at a, for a, a large corporation. I'd come home and just to, just to de-stress, I'd sit down at the piano and just play something. And that seemed to just take my mind off of anything that was bothering me or whatever. You just kind of get lost in the music. And that was that evening I sat down and I played this, this song, this tune. And I didn't really think about it, Pete, as being writing a song. I just sat down and I played it. And it was a great, simple song, very beautiful chord progression, and it just fit together, and it never changed. I never really had to fiddle with it or anything. It was just I played it, and it never changed. And a couple of days later, my wife comes home from work, <clears throat> and she says, Dave, what's the name of this song I've been humming in my head all day long? You play it on the piano all the time, and what's the name of it? She hummed a little bit of it, and I said, doesn't have a name, Linda. And she says, doesn't. Well, I said, I just made it up. It's just something I made up. Well, she got all excited and said, 
well, have you written it down? I said, no, no, I'm not going to forget it. It's, it's permanently em, em, emboldened in my brain here. And she said, oh, no, uh, something might happen to you, and that song would be gone. So she said, you better write it down. I said, okay, yes, ma'am. So I wrote down the, the notes and the chords on a piece of paper and put it in my piano bench. And I would play the song every once in a while. And we tried to come up with a name for it because it was a pretty tune, but nothing we ever decided that we wanted to name it fit the song. So roll the calendar forward two years, and some friends of ours had a little baby girl named Rachel. And they asked me and Linda to be her godparents. And, of course, we accepted. And at Rachel's christening service, we were just us and the family and the minister, and, uh, and we're sitting there through the formal part of the service, and up at the front of the church on the platform is a baby grand piano. And so I look at that piano, and toward the end of the service, I punched Linda, and I said, Hey, what do you think about me playing this tune now as, at the end of the service? She said, that's a great idea. So I went up to the family and the minister and said, would it be okay if I played a song on the piano? And they said, sure. So they, everybody sat back down, and I went over to the piano and sat down, and I started playing this tune. And I got most of the way through it, and I hear out in the audience some <clears throat> clearing the throat and some sniffles going on, and I noticed that my eyes were starting to get a little bit moist, too. And you know, if you've ever been to a, a, a baby's christening service or something like that, you know how tender and it is anyway. And so you, <laughs> it's like going to a sad, sad movie and then the mu music starts and then it really just makes it really go. Well, the music just really apparently turned every, all the emotions on high. And uh, so at the end of the song, I looked over at little Rachel in the arms of her mother and I said, from now on, this song is going to be called Rachel's Song in her honor. And that's how it got its name, Pete. That's beautiful. To have the emotion and the song and the connection and everything else, it's, it's so powerful, right? Yes. And, you know, it, then you talk about that, like the fire in the belly name of your podcast. I think that was the spark, really, that, that event that gave me what later became a, <laughs> a bonfire, a wildfire in my belly, if you will, because it really it took on a life of its own. You know, after the christening service, of course, we, I played Rachel's song for a lot of play for ourselves and whatever. But then I was doing a lot of work with Western Electric, the company I worked for, and I was having to travel a lot. One of the places that I was having to travel to was, was Nashville, Tennessee. Well, Nashville, Tennessee is Music City, USA. It's everything there seems to be related to music. And so my wife, Linda, again, it seems like everything happens because my wife says, uh, you need to think about doing this. <laughs> you may not have ever experienced that before, but <laughs> it's all these good ideas are her ideas, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Love it. <laughs> so she says, well, while you're in Nashville, why don't you see about getting a professional recording made of Rachel's song? Something we could enjoy and have to all let the family listen to, too. So I said, okay. So one evening after I'm off work, I'm driving around downtown Nashville looking for a studio that I could check out recording, get a recording made of Rachel's song. And I'm in a part of town called Music Square. If you've been to Nashville, you know there's a part of town that has the Country Music Hall of Fame and RCA studio, the one that you can go on a tour. And 
And then there's ASCAP headquarters and BMI headquarters and a bunch of studios, everything musical. So I'm driving down this one little side street. It's called Roy Acuff Place. Now, folks that may remember that Roy Acuff was a very famous and much loved musician in Nashville, Tennessee. He was great, big, uh, very famous on the Grand Ole Opry. And just Roy Acuff was a great, great person. They named the street after him. So I'm going down Roy Acuff Place. And at the end of the street, here's this big building with a kind of a barn shaped roof to it. And out front, uh, on near the street is this great big music, a uh, uh, great big mill, the the wheel, you know, the uh, the, uh, the 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 mill wheel that where they used to grind corn and whatever. So I looked around, and on the side of the building, the sign said the music mill. So they obviously took the the mill as a good symbol for their studios. Great, great, I, something you won't forget. So I went around the corner and parked in the parking lot. And sure enough, there in, through the glass door in the lobby, I could see a, a man sitting at a desk. So I knock on the door and he unlocks it and opens it and says, Hi, I'm George Clinton. Can I help you? And I said, Well, I'm looking for a studio. And he said, Well, come on in. <laughs> and as I stepped in the door in this lobby, it was a two-story, big, tall lobby. Over here on the left was this great big life-size picture of Glenn Campbell. And right in front of me was this great big wide panorama picture of the group Alabama. And then over here was the Forrester sisters. And then there were gold records and platinum records framed all around the walls. You know, you got the picture. It's kind of like looking behind you with all those books back there. If those, all those were gold records and everything, you would really be impressed. So I thought, wow. And uh, so. George says, well, this is a studio. And I said, well, I've never been in one before. And he said, well, how about I give you a tour of the place? I said, that'd be great. So he said, nobody's recording right now. So let's go over into Studio A, the big studio. Okay, so I go into the big recording room. <clears throat> big room. You could put an orchestra in that room. I mean, it probably was designed to record an orchestra. And over in the back corner was a concert grand piano and, you know, isolation rooms around the, the, the perimeter. And he said, let's go over into the re re control room where all the magic happens. So he opens this big, thick, soundproof door about eight inches thick into the control room. And we go in there. And the first thing I see is this console. Thing must have been about eight feet long. I later learned it probably had 32, at least 32 tracks. So it was a long console with sliders and knobs and switches and lights. And I, I told George, I said, wow, you could launch a spaceship from in here, it looks like. <laughs> and around the wall was tape recording machines and uh, digital recorders. And up on the wall and through the big glass window, soundproof, where you could look out into the where the musicians were. Big speakers, what they call them, monitor speakers, where you could listen to the music. And I said, wow, George, how much does a place like this rent for? He says, well, it's $125 an hour plus engineer. Now, remember, this was 1986. So in today's dollars, $125 an hour would probably be, be over $400 an hour today. And so I guess George saw how disappointed I was in that figure because <laughs> that was obviously a lot more money than I made. He said, well, don't worry, Dave. The fellow who owns this studio 
owns another one across the street. It's a tiny little studio in, in a little small house, what used to be a rent house. And he said, that one is $15 an hour plus engineer. And I said, okay, exactly. I can do that. Yes, I can. Okay. All right, George, now what I need is a musician to, put, to arrange and play my song for me. I need a, a really wonderful piano player. He thought for a second, and he says, I know just the person for you. He said his name is Gary Prim, P-R-I-M. I've known Gary all my life. He, we, we go to church together. He's a wonderful session musician. Everybody loves Gary. So I said, okay. He said, well, let's go back to my desk, and I'll get his phone number for you. So he wrote Gary's phone number on a piece of paper and gave it to me. I thanked him profusely, and I jumped in my rental car, and I hightailed it back to the hotel so I could call Gary. You may wonder why I didn't call him on cell phone. Well, remember, this was 1986. <laughs> cell phones hadn't been invented. The Internet had not been invented. CDs were just getting started. <laughs> so this was, <laughs> I'm showing my age now, I guess, but this was back in the mid-80s. mid, mid 80s. So I get to my hotel, and I call Gary Prim's number, got his answering machine. 30 minutes later, he calls me back, and he says, Dave, this is Gary Prim. Can I help you? Yes, sir. I'd love to have you record a demo of a song for me. George Clinton says you'd do a wonderful job, and wonder if you'd do that. He said, I'd be glad to do it. He, I said, what do you need? He said, well, all I need is a recording of you playing it so I can tell what it sounds like, and I need a lead sheet. And I said, okay, I can do the recording part, but what's a lead sheet? I didn't even know the, the language of the music industry in Nashville at this point. He said, oh, it's just the melody and the chords written out on a piece of paper. I said, okay, Gary, I've got that. I just didn't know to call it a lead sheet. So I got back home after that weekend and, and mailed him the lead sheet and the cassette tape of me playing Rachel's song. And two weeks later, on August the 22nd, 1986, at 6 p.m., I meet Gary Prim at this little studio across the street from the music mill. And he comes walking in with his Yamaha DX7 synthesizer under his arm. And I'm, I meet him, friendly guy, wonderful, very instant, one of those people you just instantly like. So he comes in, sets, sets his synthesizer down, and he sits down at this baby grand Yamaha piano that's in the studio there and starts warming up a little bit. And I go into the control room where the engineer is, and pretty soon Gary says, I'm ready, let's do it. So push recording, and uh, Gary starts playing my song. Now remember, I had never heard my song played by anybody else but me. So I had no idea, Pete, what I was going to hear. His, this is going to be his arrangement of my, my song. So I'm, I'm kind of at his mercy at this point. I couldn't believe what my ears were hearing. It was fantastic. It's like if you had a, you wrote a little violin piece and got Yitzhak Perlman to play it for you. Oh, whoa, whoa. You know, it's just going to be amazing. So anyway, I'm not believing what I'm hearing. He gets partway through the song and he stops. He said, rewind that. Let's start back. I can do better than that. So rewind the tape, start all over. This time, he plays the whole Rachel song all the way through to the end. No mistakes. There was no flubs anywhere. Perfect. Absolutely perfect. Well, I would have been extremely ecstatic if he had stopped right then and said, well, that's it. And that would have been the end of it. 
But nope, Gary says, nope, I've, I've got some more plans for this song. We're going to make it sound fantastic. He said, I'm going to add in there some electric piano parts on, that parallels the, the real piano. He called it doubling. He was going to double the piano. So he puts on the headset and we take two more tracks on the recorder and he records some electric piano sounds from his synthesizer to match what he played on the piano. Sounded wonderful. And then he said, okay, this song, I want, it needs some bottom and some top. And what he meant by that was some, some more fill-in sounds. So he said, I'm going to put some low strings on the bottom end of it. And I'm going to put some high strings up on the top end. So two more tracks, record the low strings. Two more tracks, record the high strings. And then in the middle of the song, after playing the verse and the chorus twice, he did something that I did, was not expecting, but it was absolutely fantastic. And that was he instantly changed the key of the song from C up a half a step to C sharp. No modulation, just all of a sudden, bam, bam, you're there. And it's, I call it a, a musical surprise. One of those things that just catches you, you know, by surprise, it makes you smile. It makes you just go, your energy level goes up. And he said, I'm going to put some horns there toward in the middle there about where I changed keys. And so he did that. Well, got all that done, come into the control room. And he said, I think that's all it needs. We mixed it all, you know, set it all up so we could listen to all of it together. And he says, I like it. And I said, I love it. This is far exceeds anything I ever dreamed that this song could sound like. So I wrote him a check for the agreed upon a fee and, and he packed up his synthesizer and out the door he went. And I didn't know whether I would ever see Gary Prim again in my life or not. But it turns out that I would. I, he and I went back in the studio over the years and recorded over 170 songs. I wrote 120 of them myself. And so having spent over 15 years, at least a week a year with Gary in Nashville, we became just the closest of friends. And he and his wife, Julie, and their two kids, they're, they're more like family than anything else, but just wonderful, wonderful people. And what a musician. Gary is just, if you ever get a chance to hear Gary Prem play anywhere, anytime, on any album, and he's played on a lot of albums, you got to listen to Gary. He is magnificent. But that recording that night was kind of like the recording, not the recording, the playing of Rachel's song at the christening service. This recording of it was another monumental keystone in my life that really changed my future forever. What did you learn from that, Dave? Well, I learned for sure that uh, I, I, I'm fairly gifted at writing music, but I learned to appreciate the true gifts of being able to perform music as well. These professional musicians, and Gary is just one of, of probably thousands, if not millions of others that are so gifted and talented that they can use their talents to make a simple song sound fantastic. So it was, I learned to not rely upon my own, just my own gifts to basically to, to bring into my circle of friends and people and what I'm doing, other people that are more gifted than I am in other fields or, and that really applies to any kind of business. You need to surround yourself with people that are, are smarter than you are, that are more gifted than you are. And, make that team as strong as it can be rather than relying solely on yourself. Uh, this, 
that that realization I think was part of the main lesson I got out of that was that having Gary perform my music and letting him express his creativity without me trying to confine him. No, I wanted to be in this key and no, don't change key. I did not try to micromanage his, his performance at all. I let him create. And that's probably another good lesson is that when you're, when you're letting people uh, in their environment where they're really good at something, us folks that tend to be micromanagers, we need to learn to back off and let that person be, let them shine, let them do their thing and not, not interfere. But there's a lot of, a lot of parallel lessons, I think, in there, Pete. Yeah, I mean, just as you were speaking there, I mean, it's that to have the foresight to stand aside, you know, because so many people do, they take the, the creative aspect and then they want to hold on to it, whereas actually there's more power in, in letting it go and, and handing it into somebody else that's, that's their flow state, their passion, right? So it's mm -hmm, it, mm -hmm. getting the hell out of your own way, I think is what I'm hearing. <laughs> Is that, is that a fair statement? I think that's a really good way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. Because you know that uh, as your podcast is fire in the belly, it's not just your belly that has the fire in it. It's the, the fire in the belly of the people that you're, you're working with. In my case, I had a wonderful musician in Gary Prim. I had a wonderful recording engineer in Ronnie Light, my recording engineer. He, his ear and his idea for putting things together were always just spot on. And, uh, and letting them have their their input into the process was was so critical. Hmm. What I mean, you talked about flow mm -hmm. state and that sort of sitting down and the time you say you described there is almost like a stress reliever. That sort of you know relieving and 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 doing all that. I mean, do you do you feel the music? Do you just go in the flow state? Are you you know what's your method <clears throat> and how do you you know how do you come across with things like that you know well you know i've thought a lot about that pete because i am a i have a degree in mathematics minor in physics worked in the computer center four years was a computer programmer i've been in technology all my life so as you can probably guess i'm a very <clears throat> left brain oriented analytical kind of person tend have that tendency and you would think well how in the world would somebody with that tendency also be creative on the other side where you're you're really it's really right brain functions that are doing the, the creativity and I've, I've thought about that a lot because it, it's it's almost like i have to get some to a place where i almost flip a switch <clears throat> when i sit down at the piano if i really try to think about what i'm playing it doesn't sound very good at all i mean it's very mechanical and it's like when I took piano lessons, you know, you had to play exactly what was on the sheet of music and it was just so mechanical. And if you've ever been to little, little kids, piano recitals, please take your earplugs because <laughs> most of them, it's not very pleasant to listen to. But then occasionally you'll see a little kid step up to the piano and he plays music. It's not the, it's not the notes he's playing. He's making music and putting feeling into the song and all that, the emotions. And what a contrast versus somebody that's just bam, 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 playing just notes in a very harsh rhythm. So for me, I have to get myself out of my analytical left brain side of my head and into the, the more relaxed right side and creative side. And for me, somehow or another, the, the sound of piano music kind of does that to me. 
I can sit down at the piano and just play some nothing but uh, I'll just hit one chord and I'll just sit and listen to it ring for a minute or you know it'll it'll ring in the piano for a long time and it's it's that if you really listen to it for those that play an instrument they know what I'm talking about is you can just kind of just close your eyes and let that sound and that music come into your soul almost and it almost transforms you into brings you into the music and it's those kind of things that I, I think is what transforms me from being super analytical to being creative when I, I sit there and I just play something that oh that sounds good well let me what do oh that sounds good too and just and I kind of lose myself into the music and uh, that's that's kind of how my creativity starts is with with me and the piano having a conversation is kind of the way I put it. When do you, do you drive the music or does the music drive you? Which is it? Oh, I think it's kind of a little bit of both. You know, sometimes it's a happy accident. Like if I'm playing something and I hit what quote, it was a, a wrong note that I didn't really intend to hit. And, but in it, and in, in hindsight, it said, Oh, well, that sounded pretty good. <laughs> then you go and re, you work around that. So you, sometimes you can massage a, a tune or a melody, you can work on it and make it sound good. Or sometimes you sit down like I did with Rachel's song, played the whole thing, didn't even have to think about anything. It just was there. So it's a, it's a little bit of both, I think. So from that, I mean, that, that sort of, that exposure, I mean, did that then set off? Because, I mean, you're still working at this point. You've still, you know, you've, you've gone and you've got this recorded. But at what point did you actually start sort of stepping into this more and more and, and really sort of taking it more seriously, if you like? Well, when I got back home after recording Rachel's song, of course, the first thing I had to do was play it for my wife because, again, this was 1986. I didn't have any way to play it for her over the phone. She had never heard it before till I got home, played it for her. I, don't, I, I probably kissed her hello, and then we went straight to the stereo, and I said, you got to hear this. <laughs> So we sat down on the couch and, and listened to Rachel's song, and, then, and it just literally moved us beyond imagine. And I played it for everybody that I could find that would listen to it. And one of the people that I played it for was a dear friend by the name of Bob McHone, who was a wonderful radio announcer. And he had a Saturday morning radio program where he played big band jazz music and, and just would talk about the orchestra and all the things about the song and play it. And so I was having lunch with my friend Bob, I think it was on a Wednesday, and uh, I was telling him about Rachel's song. And he said, well, Dave, I've got to hear this. <laughs> so I said, okay, well, he said, let's go to my office and play it on. He had a boom box there in his office we could play it on. So he would go to his office and he puts the cassette tape in and Bob is sitting there. I can still see him today sitting there right close to the, the speaker so he could hear it really well. <clears throat> Got his eyes closed and he's listening to Rachel's song as it plays. Then I hear this sound that you'll recognize as the universal approval sound. It's mm, 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 mm. <laughs> it just it just was he was just taken in by the song and by you know pretty soon he had tears in his eyes and when it finished he looked at me and he says Dave that song Rachel's song is will be a standard he said and you have got to let me play it on my radio show I said okay Bob but all I have is this reel to reel master tape 
that's it. It's a quarter inch tape. And if you, if that gets gone, that that's the end of that recording. So he said, I'll take good care of it. So he took it to the radio station. They made a copy and he played it that Saturday morning on the radio, his radio show. And I was, Linda and I were at home. And of course I had my tape recorder running so I could record it. And I still have that recording of Bob's announcing my song and hearing it first time ever on the radio. And so he played it. And then after, we were all excited about hearing my music on the radio. And then the phone rings and it's the station manager at the KEZK radio station. And he said, Dave, he said, I got to tell you, he said, I've been in radio for over 20 years and this has never happened to me before. He said, when Bob played Rachel's song, he said, our phone bank over here with about 10 or 12 phone lines lit up. Every line was busy. People calling in saying, what is that song you just played? Tell me more about Rachel's song. Tell me more about this guy in Winston-Salem, Dave Combs. And so he said, this is, he said, you've got something, boy. He said, you have got really a special song. And I said, well, thank you very much. I'm not sure what I'm going to be able to do with it, but I'm going to take off with it. He said, well, you better. So that was another one of those things that kind of lit another fire in our belly. It says, okay, Dave, <clears throat> you got to get this thing on the radio. Well, how do you do that? I didn't know for sure. All I knew was that I probably need to call some radio stations and find, first of all, I need to find out where they were because this was an easy listening radio station. Now we don't have that kind of an animal much here in, in the United States anymore. I think there may be four or five still easy listening format stations in the whole country. But back then there were about 400. Well, I got a list of all of those from a, a publication called Radio and Records, R&R. They would sell you the list of all the, the book that had the, all the radio stations in the whole country. Well, by format. So I had all the easy listening stations, their phone number. I would call them and speak to the program director and tell him what I had. And he'd say, well, send me a record. And, and by the way, at this time, I, had, I did go back and get a 45 single record made of Rachel's song. Now, some of your listeners won't even know what that is, but it's the old vinyl record with the big hole in the middle that ran at 45 RPMs. And they called it a 45. So I had a 45 record made of Rachel's song. So I started sending these 45 records out to the program directors, these radio stations. They all loved it. They all played it. And then some of the stations that I called would tell me, we don't do our own programming. It's done for us by a company in Chicago called Bonneville Broadcasting. And so we pay them to do our programming for us. I said, okay, well, let me have that phone number. <laughs> so I called Bonneville Broadcasting and got a hold of the program director or the, uh, yeah, the, the program director for Easy Listening Stations. And I can't remember his name at the moment, but he loved Rachel's song. I sent it to him and he loved Rachel's song. And he let me know real quick that he was going to put it in rotation on all the stations that they programmed. So I went from just a handful of radio stations. All of a sudden, my music was played on about 200 easy listening stations all over the country. So I kept at it and I eventually got Rachel's song played on all 400 stations all over the whole country. It became and was on the charts. It made the, the charts. It was number one or in the top of the easy listening instrumental charts on like Los Angeles and Chicago, St. Louis, Atlanta, 
New York, Baltimore, all these places. Rachel's song was right up there. And that was another eye-opening where I realized that, you know, I better keep this fire in my belly going here because this is really something. And now what do I need to do? Well, next thing I know, I start getting mail, fan mail, something I never got in my life. You know, here's a letter addressed to me from somebody I didn't even know. And they were telling me how much they love my music, how much Rachel's song meant to them and all this kind of stuff. And I thought, wow, this is amazing. So now I got to figure out how am I going to take advantage of this? Now I am, I, I have my MBA from Wake Forest University here in Winston-Salem. So I'm a business person. I'm also analytical and I can connect two dots. And those two dots said, hey, this person wants my music and I've got to find a way to get it to them. Boom, got to connect those two. So I didn't have any music to sell to them. I got busy and wrote some more music. And I went back to Nashville, hooked up with Gary Prem again, and we did our first album. And of course, it's called Rachel's Song. And it has the first seven songs that I ever wrote are on this album. And they're all instrumental. And so then, by this was 1988. And by then, CDs were starting to take hold. Well, CD was a great format compared to uh, cassette tapes because the quality of the music was just superb compared to a tape. So I got CDs made of Rachel's song. I think I ordered, I think my first order was like a minimum order of 500 or something like that. And I thought, how in the world am I ever going to sell 500 CDs of Rachel's song? Well, I found out that it wasn't going to take very long because all these people were writing to me, wanted to buy it. And so I started selling the CDs to the people. And I, I think I sold them to them for $14 a piece. And they didn't hesitate to pay that for the CD. And, uh, and cassette tapes were also big back then too. So I had cassette tapes as well as CDs. Sold more set tapes than I did CDs in the beginning. So that was the beginning of the business model side of things here, where I was figuring out how I could turn myself into an entrepreneur here and, and do something with my music as a music business. Now, the problem was, where am I going to sell my music on a retail? I wanted to sell it through a retail establishment as well. You know, I didn't want to just depend on people hearing it on the radio and writing to me. And that was okay. Several hundreds of those were happening. But I wanted it to be on a big scale. So I thought, well, I'll go to our record stores. Now, you may remember we used to have record stores. May still, there's the vinyl record stores are making a comeback of sorts. But back then, you bought your music at a record store. You didn't go to Walmart. I don't think Walmart was open back then. But you didn't go to the big box uh, department stores to get music. You bought it at a record store. We had one in North Carolina, and it was called the Record Bar. And I approached them about carrying my music in their stores. They wouldn't have, they wouldn't give me the time of day. They didn't, they'd never heard of Dave Combs. They didn't like instrumental music, first of all. They, all they wanted was country and rock and roll. And so I got nowhere. So this was really, that was one of those uh, uh, roadblocks that you run into as an entrepreneur. You, you, you think you're going to go really good and boom, you hit this wall. Well, I figured my philosophy has always been you either go over it, under it, around it, or through it. That's my philosophy about a wall. So I decided there's got to be another way. And I'd like to take credit for this myself as being a brilliant idea that I came up with all by myself. 
but it's not true. Almost by accident. I was working at AT&T at the time in Bethesda, Maryland. And the lady whose office was right beside mine had a good friend who owned a gift shop in Old Town, Alexandria, Virginia. Now, for those of you that have been to Alexandria, Virginia, you know it's a wonderful tourist town with shops and restaurants. It's right on the Potomac River. It's a beautiful place to visit. Well, Jane, uh, uh, my co-worker's friend, Jane, owned this gift shop. And so she wanted to give her a CD of Rachel's song. And I said, okay, sure. So I gave her one to give to her. Didn't think much about it. And in about a couple of days, my phone rings, and it's Jane, the owner of this gift shop. And she says, Dave, uh, you don't know me, but uh, Leslie gave me one of your CDs, and I've been playing it, and I need some help. She said, every time that song goes on my, my CD player in my shop, Everybody in the store comes over at the counter and says, hey, what's that song? <laughs> Do you have it for sale? I want to take it home with me. And she said, I don't have it, so can you help me out? So we reached an agreement on uh, wholesale price because I'd never sold it at wholesale before. This was brand new to me. So I'm, I'm still learning the ropes on how to sell something wholesale. So we reached an agreement. She said, can you bring me some tonight? I said, sure. After I get off work, I'll bring you a box of them. So we got home, Linda and I went and took a box of CDs and cassette tapes to, to Old Town Alexandria to this gift shop. Now, the name of the gift shop is called America, and she sold everything patriotic. It was any, if it was red, white, and blue, she sold it in that shop. And she played patriotic music on her CD system. She would play John Philip Sousa kind of music, all those patriotic songs, and had a great sound system, sounded really great. And then she also had a, one of these five CD changers, and one of those five was Rachel's song. And every time Rachel's song came on, boom, everybody over to the counter. So I took her that box of CDs and tapes and left them with her. I thought, well, we're going to, this will be interesting. Two days later, phone rings. Jane, Dave, can you bring me some more? And tonight, I am sold out. I didn't order enough. How about doubling the order this time? So sure enough, Linda and I boxed them up back down to Old Town Alexandria, give her the tapes of tapes and CDs of Rachel's song. Then we go to a great restaurant and have a great dinner and then come back home. So we made that trip every week for over a year. And Jane sold thousands of tapes and CDs out of that one little gift shop. And that was when my MBA and my business modeling mind kicked in, and I said, aha, this is, the, this is where I need to concentrate on selling my music. So, because I did, I made myself a spreadsheet. Being a computer person, I was going to do, the, do it right. Spreadsheet, all right? Here's the column that says how many tapes I sold her, how many CDs I sold her, here what it cost me, and here's what she paid me, and you do the arithmetic, and down at the bottom is my gross profit. Okay, and I thought to myself, okay, what if we had could only find one gift shop like that in every state? Let's just do 50, okay? Column two is column one times 50. Well, this bottom line number is not looking more interesting because, you know, the gross profit on a, on a, a CD was, you know, it, it cost me maybe $1.50, 
sold it to her for $7, and she sold it for 14 So she made a lot of money, and I made a lot of money on each one. The gross margin is really important. So column two, 50 times. Oh, that's an interesting. Well, what if we, let's don't get greedy. Let's just do five gift shops in every state. Surely to goodness, out of this big country, there's five gift shops in every state. Column three is 250 times column one. Linda, come here. I want you to see this number at the bottom of this spreadsheet. Look here. This is three times what I make at work. <laughs> and she said, what? I said, yes, ma'am. She, and she says, well, we know what we got to get doing. <laughs> we we got to find these other 250 gift shops just like Jane's. And so that was the when the, the fire got up to a really hot level in my belly at that point because I knew. You know, it doesn't take a genius to figure out when something really works on a small scale. If you can duplicate that and multiply it, that's a business model to die for. There's no, it takes the guesswork out of it. You've already ironed out all the wrinkles in the, the small model. I guess it's basically the franchise model, right? And that's what you do with a franchise. You, you get a thing that works really good, you duplicate it all over the place. Well, I ended up with over over the years and it took me and how i did it, it's another long story i don't think we have time to go into it here but in my book i outline how i went from that one gift shop to over a thousand not 50 or not 250 a thousand gift shops over the entire country you couldn't go in a tourist town in the united states without running into my music somewhere and that's where my business model enabled me to quit my job at AT&T in 1992 and do nothing but my music from that point on. Two questions. How do, how do you feel about that now, looking back and reflecting, and what have you learned? Well, for number one, I have no regrets about that leaving my full-time career at AT&T. And I, I guess, you know, back then, that was a big deal. When I grew up, uh, it was if you got a job with a great corporation like Western Electric or General Electric or any of the Ford Motor Company, you know, any of those big corporations, man, you, you better stick with that because if, when, when you got your 40 year degree of uh, service, you got a great pension and it was a great career, it was a great job. Well, times have changed. I mean, <laughs> I mean, really changed now, but for me, when I had been in that. AT&T for 22 and a half years. 25 years is what I had a, needed to have as a minimum to retire. And I was only 44. I needed to be at least 50 years old to retire. So what am I going to do? Sit there and work my way around and you know work at my job doing making X while at home I'm making 3X and just to get a, a, a pension paycheck that is probably going to be not even anything close to what I'm making with my music. So I'm, it was a fairly easy decision once I ran the numbers and saw what was happening and where it was going and the trends and everything. To basically, I had lunch with my boss one Monday morning and, and uh, Monday and told him, I said, well, Bill, I can't afford to work here anymore. <laughs> and he chuckled because he knew what I have about my music business. And he said, well, I wish I could do it too, but uh, and so I basically resigned and left my career and did, didn't even look back. And what I have learned, I think, is that 
that for any young person that has a, a, a the fire in their belly to do something, and if they've kind of proven that they're they're not just you know dreaming or <laughs> they're on something, they need to know. You don't have to know a hundred percent, but you got to have a pretty good idea. But once you have that really desire and that level of determination, that fire in your belly, don't look back. You can make your decision, move forward, and and good things will happen. And as I heard by somebody yesterday on, uh, I think it was on a 60 Minutes thing, this, this chef that's making food for all the people in Ukraine, he was one of his famous statements. They asked him, how do you do this? Don't you plan and everything? And he says, well, now, if I sat down every for every hour that I'm planning on something, I could be out here feeding somebody. And so he says, there's one thing principle, and I really love the way he put it, was that you can never turn a vehicle left or right or any direction when you're sitting still. You have to be moving to, in order to be able to turn. And so I think that's a really good, and I love that analogy of you can't turn unless you're moving. You can sit in the parking lot and feed that steering wheel all day long and you're not going anywhere, right? But once you move, you can turn and, and go someplace. So I think uh, for me, that, that deciding to move and to take action and not look back and have the confidence and, and affirmation and really having heard letters from over 50,000 people really confirmed that I was making the right decision too. It's so powerful. And by the sounds of it, that you know, it sounds like Linda was behind you all the way here. She was, you know, to have that support and that, that guidance as well. I mean, have I understood that correctly? Is that, is that what it is? Yes, that is. That's the understatement of the day. She is, uh, still is, you know, she, my wife, Linda is an amazing lady. And I wish we had time to have her come down here and, and talk to you as well. My wife, Linda is retiring next month as the state controller for the state of North Carolina. She will have done that position for, for the last four, uh, eight years. And so she has over 200 people that work for her in Raleigh. And for the last two year, two and a half years during the pandemic, her organization has worked remotely. They've all worked from home. Now her organization does payroll for over 90,000 people. They ran the payroll from home. They do, they have, she has a call center of over hundred people that answer calls about payroll. They all work from home. Her entire organization went home when the, when the governor announced the emergency de declaration, she says, all right, grab your laptops and, and go home. And they had already practiced it. They had rehearsed this on her insistence because she had experience with this in Washington. She was the former controller of the United States in the White House in Washington previously. And so she, in her previous jobs, she had practiced this, what they call COOP, continuance of operations, where you go and exercise and you, you pretend like a disaster has happened and you work out the kinks of how you make it work. She had drilled that into her people in North Carolina before the pandemic, thank goodness. So when the pandemic came along, she said, all right, we practiced it, folks. This is for real. Go home. They didn't miss a lick, not one lick. And so, but she is retiring, thank goodness, at the end of June. Her, it's a term appointment. She has to because her, her term is up at the end of June. But she is one remarkable lady, and she is a great encourager to me 
and she's a great mentor to her people. She has you know, all these people that work for her in Raleigh. They love her. They, they absolutely, and she loves them. They're a, a great organization, and she loves teaching them the things that she's learned over the years and helping them become good leaders in their own right. And, uh, and I think that's, that's really important. And she's been a huge help to me with encouraging me and sometimes, you know, kicking me out, out of the, off the, the sofa sometimes and I do something like writing the book, you know, last beginning of the pandemic, she says, what are we going to do? And she says, you know, that book we've been talking about perhaps for years, all right, you're going to get off your butt on the bench and you're going to go write this book. <laughs> and I did. And so it took about nine months to get all the, the stories together and hire the editors and do all that process of publishing a book, which is, that's an education in itself, but it was great. And so, but I have to say that was her idea too. So uh, I hope she's upstairs now having a really good idea for something to eat for supper, but, uh, <laughs> and she will, she's a great cook too. But uh, anyhow, uh, that's, that's my better half. What was your idea and your intention with the book? Well, first of all, I wanted to memorialize these stories. I've been telling, you know, I would speak to uh, uh, these, you know, like Rotary or groups like that and, and have, give them a program and tell stories about the writing of Rachel Stone, the same stories that I've been telling you. And every time I would give one of these programs, uh, the people would say, well, you need to write a book of all these stories. And I've been told that for years and years. And so really it was those stories and, and, and wanting to have that down in, in something that somebody that, that I didn't even know, much like what happened with Rachel's song, people heard it that I had no idea they were gonna hear it. People will get my book, hopefully, and read it and, and find out some, and learn some things too, because it's a book not just about music, but it's a book about being an entrepreneur and how you work your way through an, a, a, an initial idea to make it into something big later on. So really my purpose in the book is, is really to help me uh, tell the stories of my music and hopefully encourage people to also, with their curiosity, at least hopefully find Rachel's song and my other music and listen to it as well. So it's really a a hand in glove with the music. They, they go together. So it's, uh, it's been really helpful so far. It's opened a lot of doors for those of that are thinking about writing a book. If you're a public speaker or you're a performer of any kind, I think it's always helpful to, to have a book. You know, if I'm, or if I run into somebody at the grocery store and we get to talking about life or music or whatever, I'll go out in the car and I'll get them a copy of my book and say, here, take this. You'll, I think this will be good for you to read. So it's, it's, a, it's a good thing to have as well. It's just, and I'm sure you found this, the same thing with your books. Absolutely. I mean, it's, there's, the, there's those that have, and there's those that talk about it, right? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> you going into that studio the first time, it's saying it's, it's, it's definite, you know, think about this, talk about this and think and go rich. It's the definiteness of decision. It's, it's following the lead. It's going into that studio. It's taking that step. It's talking to that person. It's asking the question. It's leading forward, right? And then, or you, mm -hmm. or you go, hmm, I don't know. There's too many to choose from. I'll just go home. <laughs> so it's taking that decision, it's, it's taking that action and that step forward, right? Yes. Got to take action. The key word is action. 
and uh, inaction is you're never going to get anything done if it's if you're just kind of frozen in place. You've got to take action. What 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 does bring you to a state of action? I mean, do you do you set goals for yourself? Do you try and produce a certain amount? Do you you know what what's your routine and habits there, Dave? Well, I've been working really hard at these podcasts to try to schedule as many of these each day as I can comfortably do. Three or four is about the limit. But uh, uh, that's my main motivation right now is just to make sure that using and I've been using this Podmatch app that that has been wonderful to help me get connected with the, the podcast hosts. And so keeping that booked, I keep myself booked my uh, <laughs> this is my book of upcoming podcasts. I've got about, I don't know, 25 or 30 already booked that yet to, yet to happen. And I've done all, over 60 already. But uh, just that has really kept me going because, number one, it's, it's energizing. I enjoy the heck out of meeting folks like you and the other hosts that I've, I've dealt with. There many of those uh, we now we still keep in touch. You know, there's a connection there that. You know they're a, they're a new friend, so to speak. So it's 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 really great. But my my routine now is to try try to keep as many of these uh, podcasts booked as I can that as that I can comfortably do without overbooking myself. And uh, that's pretty much it. I love that because I mean it's it's the story and um, you know chicken soup for the soul. They talk about that. You know Mark uh, Mark Victor Hansen and Jack Canfield. You know and I've had Mark Victor Hansen on the show and they talked about that. It's, it's the, it's doing the five things every day. So it's like, it's doing the shows. It's the, it's the turning up. It's doing certain actions. Just, it doesn't have to be crazy. It just has to be persistent and consistent. It's, it's just day in, day out. Yeah. The fact that, you know, you have, you're setting a goal and you're doing it every day and you're doing all this, taking this action. And that's, that is how you change things. You know, it's everyone you meet, you say, you, you know, it's about sharing the song. It's about sharing the, you know, sharing the album. It's putting it forward contest- consistently, right? You know, that's. Yeah, that's right. I, you know, Jack Canfield wrote the forward to my book. I got to know him a couple of years ago and he has been a huge supporter of mine and very much an encourager and a mentor with my book. And you know, with without his encouragement, I'm not sure how far this book would have gone, but uh, he was kind enough to write the forward to my book. And uh, he he still keeps a, keeps tabs on me and keep, wants to know, how, how are you doing? And are you still moving ahead? So, but his, his principles that he, he wrote, and I keep this right close to me, this little book, the, the Success Principles by Jack Canfield, or just, it's just, this is a PhD in entrepreneurship and business in a book. Anybody wants to learn how to do something and succeed, that's one of the must-read books that, that you've got to have. But Jack is a, a wonderful, wonderful encourager. This is amazing, you know, the people who are, you know, that, that sort of, the book, and it's a fabulous book, I totally agree, it's, I couldn't, you know, it's, it's an amazing book, and all the habits and, and, but even still, even being at that level, the amount of encouragement they give back, the amount of service, the amount of contribution. And it's the same with your songs and your music, right? I mean, I was interested because you call it your music and, and is there a point that it becomes not your music? It's the people's music, it's the universe's music, or will it always be or originate through you? Well, uh, that's a good question. I really hadn't thought much about that, but, but I do 
I hope that and I expect that my music will long outlast me. When I'm when I'm gone, I think and I hope that my music will still be being played somewhere around the world because it seems to have it's it seems to be timeless. Um, yeah, the genres and people's uh, favorite kinds of music change over time, but also things kind of go in cycles. And uh, you know, who knows when the instrumental, soothing, relaxing kind of music, what we they used to be called elevator music. Will will make a return, you know, but it's it still has an effect, a positive effect on people, and it's just that it's not going to be your loud, boisterous music that you would hear in a you know a, in a restaurant or a bar or someplace where they're trying to just basically blast you out of the room with noise, kind of. But uh, for those that want to listen to music in a quiet setting, I think this this kind of classical music or whether it's whether you like country or bluegrass or uh, the blues, any of the, the kinds of jazz music is just great to, to listen to. And I hope that my music will be still played and enjoyed for centuries to come. And uh, whether it's known as my music or not, but uh, that's that's really not my, I'm not on an ego trip of wanting everybody to say, well, that's Dave Combs music, but I do want them to, have the opportunity to hear it and enjoy it. Just interesting. I mean, talking about the, so the success principles now for you and where you're at and all the experience and the amazing things you've achieved. I mean, what is your definition of success? Well, I kind of measure my success in the number of lives that I can feel that I can touch through my music. Now, it's I have a very limited way of gauging that these days by by the fact that people don't write letters much anymore and plus there's harder it's harder to find out who i am or how to get a hold of me if all you hear it is on a podcast or on pandora and it's just one of the next three or four songs and it just there it's there and it's gone it's not like the older days where you could call the radio station and ask what that song was but uh i i just Knowing that there's millions of people, I get reports every month from Spotify and uh, Apple Music, all the, the the streaming platforms of how much each each song has been streamed each each uh, month, and it's in the, the hundreds of thousands. It's it, and sometimes in the millions, and so that alone, I think, is to me enough confirmation that if it's been heard that many times then I know deep down uh, at, uh, at least a small percentage of those are really going to be touched by the music in a significant way. And even though I, I have probably will never know exactly, but it it's just a comfort to me to know that it, it's still out there. It's being played. It's been heard. And uh, the fact that we don't, the musicians don't make very much money from streaming these days, uh, which is a kind of a bone of contention for us musicians. Uh, just as a side, do you know how many times a song has to be streamed for me to get one penny of a, of a royalty? Uh, I would hate I would hate to guess and say it's probably maybe a hundred. No, it's not that big, but it's five. I have a song has to be streamed five times for me to get one penny. So you stop and think about that. For let's say the average song is three minutes. Mm -hmm. That's fifteen minutes of my music playing. 
and that I that it was my creativity that created it. It was my money that recorded it. It was it's my intellectual property, and they're enjoying it for fifteen minutes, and I get one penny. And that is the issue that you'll hear all over and over. It gets comes up all, often in the amount of royalties and payments from the intellectual property from to the musicians to the creators of music. And it's it's there's we got a long ways to go, I believe, to make it a fair compensation for the people who create the music, and for people entering in the music business this this day and time. To do what I did in our late 80s and 90s is virtually impossible today with the technology and the, the payment schemes that are in place today. Number one, you cannot buy an automobile hardly that has a CD player in it. They're all, it's all streaming electronic music. Uh, CDs are the thing of the past, pretty much. Cassette tapes died a long time ago. Vinyl records are making somewhat of a comeback to those that small segment of the, the music buyer. But by and large, it's, it's the, the, the ways of offering the music to people have been so controlled now by the media and the big uh, electronic internet connected outfits that it's, uh, it is very, very difficult to make a living with music these days, unless you're a star performer and doing performances at a, a venue and selling out tickets for your performance. Uh, it's very, very difficult. It's, I mean, that's, that's it, right? I mean, the route to market and it's the same for business, same for everything. It's, it's very, it's, it's, it's the same, but it's different. I mean, the success principles, so many things, there's so many activities and actions we can take, but actually the route to market could be very different and it's good. There's some, I mean, the some of it would be better, some of it not so much, but who knows, right? It's just different. Yes. Yes. What are you capable of, Dave, out of interest? Do you know? Uh, ask me again. Elaborate on what, you, what you're asking. What's your potential? Oh, my potential. Well, I think the potential is, is probably, I would, you could say unlimited, but it's very much dependent upon the... Uh, the actions that I take and also the actions that occur along the way. For example, I could be on a, on a trend now making X amount of money with my music or whatever, or getting it exposed a certain number of thousands of plays a day. But suppose that some by some chance, some person was watching this podcast, somebody like maybe an Oprah Winfrey or a Dolly Parton or some NBC Good Morning America or ABC Good Morning America or uh, CBS Sunday Morning, somebody producer says, well, I think we need to put Dave Combs on the program and, and talk about Rachel's song and his music. Well, you know what would happen there. It's the same story that you've heard about all the, the authors that got their book supported by my Oprah Winfrey. They go from an unknown author to an instant New York Times bestseller. So it's those kind of things, and, and I think you, when you uh, interviewed Mark Victor Hansen and, and Jack Canfield, they, they talk about you, you, don't, you don't try to pick your people that you talk to about your music. Like you don't know which podcast or which appearance that you do is going to make a connection that makes a difference. You do them all. 
you know, you just keep at it. So I, and to answer your question, I think the potential is unlimited, but I think that the control of how you get to that point is somewhat out of my control. It's, it's, it's going to be up to some uh, circumstances that may or may not happen, but they certainly won't happen if I don't take action to move to the next step. But I don't know when that next step is going to lead to something, but I'm just going to keep at it. And with the faith that by some, some time or other, it'll, it'll be like what happened to Rachel's song. You know, it got played on the radio. People heard it. They loved it. And all of a sudden it had a life of its own. So your businesses, your, your products, your whatever you're trying to uh, promote can take on a life of its own that is almost out of your control at some point. It just goes. But uh, something as we used to say, it, it went viral. Well, that just means that a lot of people told a lot of people who told a lot of people about something, and eventually you get in some big numbers. So I'm hoping that maybe eventually, someday, that uh, my music and perhaps my book will also go viral or be at least in some way promoted by power, you know, powers beyond my control at this point. But I'm going to keep at it and keep keep pressing on and keep moving forward. Do you believe in luck or fate or what, what's your, what's your perception of the universe? Well, there's a little book that a fellow by the name of Squire Rushnell wrote called when God winks. If you haven't, if you don't know about this little book, it's a great little read. He, he used to be a, an executive, I think with ABC, good morning America. He was, he's a very well-known producer in the media. But he wrote this little book, When God Winks, and it's full of stories of how things happen to people that upon hindsight could not have been accidental. That when you met that person and that person turns out to be the turning point in your life, what are the odds of that happening purely by accident? And so in answer to your question, my book is full of these stories, many of which have what I call the God winks, is when I look back on the story of the thing that happened that made something really work well, the circumstances that led up to that were no accident. They could not have been. They had to have been planned and guided by a, a greater power than me. It had to be when God winked at me, and some of them, I call them God shouts at me because he really turn my direction and in, in because of an event or something that that happened. So I in terms of do I believe in luck? I, there are there is such a thing as chance, you know, just pure flipping a coin and how many times is going to come up heads or tails. But then in life, there are things that that happen to you and for you and with you that I believe are are part of a, a, a bigger plan that, that God has for your life. And in my case, it was a lot of things and he's not done with me yet. So I have no idea what's coming up with the, when God winks at me again. But uh, those kind of things are really uh, important to me. And I think your, your audience would probably in their own lives, when, whether it's how they came to meet their spouse, the, one, the person they married and spent the rest of their life with, or whatever great thing happened in their life, some uh, uh, business partner shows up that uh, is, makes their business go really, really well. 
those kind of things, you know, maybe there's a God wink there that uh, it was it wasn't pure circumstance that that happened. It's that aspect, isn't it? So it's the more you show up and the more you try and the more action you take, the luckier you get. You know, it's that aspect, isn't it? <laughs> it that is absolutely correct. You, and I heard somebody said you make your own luck. It's and it's it's always uh, interesting, isn't it? When you say to people, you know, it's like, oh, you're just lucky. <laughs> it can be great, but it also can be very insulting for people and saying, yeah, that's not sort of taking away the time, the effort, the risks, the, you know, the, mm -hmm. the attempts, the failures, the, the getting back up again. Right. That's so to wipe it all out with just saying it's luck. It's, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's different. Right. Yeah. So I guess, uh, Thomas Edison was, you could say he was lucky to have invented the light bulb, but he also found 999 ways it wouldn't work before he finally found one that did. So, it wasn't so much luck it was it was moving ahead and taking action and being persistent and never ever giving up i mean i sort of and i love that story and and you sort of go are you pretty sure on the 900th time his wife or partner or somebody and next door neighbor was saying he's mad <laughs> probably yeah <laughs> waste, waste so much time on that and he's it's never gonna work and all that he's gonna have full of naysayers <laughs> Everyone, right till the day that actually it's the one and then suddenly boom it's yep. like, mm -hmm. oh it's yeah like, say it takes a lifetime to become an overnight success you know <laughs> that's that's very well put yes you know it's, it's 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 amazing what i mean what do you see this as you know as you say i mean it's it's sort of music i mean is it generational is it something that you know you you know you'd sort of hand down almost to to next generations is it something there that you know almost a legacy do you think well um i've thought about that a little bit too and that i hope that some of my inspiration through for example my book the stories in there if it's if it helps to inspire some young person to keep practicing their musical craft or whatever and encourage them to not give up on their music uh, that's a kind of a legacy that i would be really happy with is even though it wouldn't be directly connected with me necessarily uh like linda and i we have no children so there's no uh, legacy of a of one of my offspring becoming a, a musician or whatever but uh that's not to say that i can't be an encourager for other young folks that when i they approach me and want to talk about their music and what should they do i can i will i will spend as much time as i need to to with a young person to help them keep encouraged with their music and and uh, pursue it. You know, I'm on the uh, I'm on the board of advisors for the dean of the School of Music at Appalachian State University and have been since 1994. And through that, we have sponsored scholarships for many young students at Appalachian in the music department. And that purpose is to encourage them and to give them some support and help getting through their, their, their music degree. And through that process, we've gotten to know some of those musicians and young people, and many of them go on to be music teachers in high school or uh, music directors or teachers. And, and it's just uh, re rewarding in that aspect. So anytime I can encourage anybody with pursuing their music, either as a hobby or even as a career, especially when you run into somebody who you, is obviously a real talent, 
sometimes, you know, you, you, you see a young kid that just is a gifted, super gifted person. And that's the one that you want to see just have every opportunity they can to, to grow as a musician and become that superstar someday. And, you know, knock it out of the park on America's Got Talent or something, you know, one of those things. But you need to encourage people. Uh, and I hope that my, my music and that my book can do that. And that's, I mean, what a legacy to encourage and to, you know, your fellow man. And I can't remember who said it. It's like, to, you know, to, to encourage others without potentially knowing the, you know, knowing the result of the impact. Is that not ultimate service? Is that not... Mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm without the recognition or without the advice yep. you make a ripple in the pond and who knows who knows i mean that's that's, that's beautiful in itself yep so, i mean do you play any other instruments or, or is, is dave a piano man through and through pretty much the piano but i have uh, you can see on the, the other side back here that's a synthesizer keyboard my wife and i play the piano and the synthesizer together quite often just to have fun and i've even from a young kid, I picked up the guitar and learned how to play chords on the guitar. I'm not a guitarist by any stretch of the imagination, but at least it taught me the, the, the structure of the chords and the chord progressions. And I love to listen to wonderful guitar music and I'm always amazed by people who can play that instrument very giftedly. I have a high school friend. In fact, he's on one of my albums, Stan Moon, who's a great guitarist, lives in Lexington, Kentucky and um, is it Lexington or Louisville? Louisville, Kentucky. And uh, he, he is a great guitarist and uh, just a gifted musician. And uh, of course, there's Gary Prim. He just, he taught himself pretty much how to play the piano. He, he took lessons like I did for a couple of years as a kid, but the rest of it, Gary kind of taught himself how to play by just being around good musicians and, and learning and, time on the instrument and practice and and uh he has become really very proficient at it yeah it's what what do you listen to out of interest what's what's your go-to in the music world well i love the music of the the 60s i love doo-wop music because it's uh music i can usually sit down at the piano and and turn on the whatever it's playing, and I can play right along with it, at least the chords, once I know what key it's in, because most of them are, a, you know, it's a <laughs> C, A minor, F, and G kind of chord progression that it's very, it's fun to play along with, because those songs are, are great, they've got a great rhythm, they're, they're just super fun to play along with. So I love the, the doo-wop, I love, I love jazz. Now, I am not a jazz player at all. I wish I did have that gift of being able to, to improvise and play jazz, but I love to listen to it. It's just so wonderful to to appreciate all the the wonderful music that these musicians can create, just seemingly out of thin air. There's you won't find them reading music as they're playing. They're they're just playing right out of their head, kind of thing. I love to listen to piano. I love to listen to vibraphone. I uh, love vibe music. I love organ. I love choral music. You know, I'm I'm a former choir director. I I I love conducting choirs as they perform the music. And in fact, my wife and I wrote an entire cantata one year for our church, and that was quite an an fun thing to do. And when we had uh, over a hundred musicians that I got to direct, 
and we packed the house, the church with over 900 people on a Sunday afternoon for the performance of it for the, to celebrate the 125th anniversary of our church. And it's called the Temple of God. And actually, you can go, you can watch it on my YouTube channel. I have a video recording of the entire cantata on my YouTube channel, which is just Combs Music, C-O-M-B-S Music, all run together on YouTube. But it's called the Temple of God. But that was a, a thing that my wife and I wrote. She wrote the words, and I wrote the music to the cantata. It's a beautiful connection, isn't it? I mean, that's how's that and, and to give it, it it's something special very special yes it was tell me what's what's a bit of a guilty pleasure for dave then what's what will we find you doing if you're not working as such i love to play table tennis and i love to shoot pool i have a pool table and a, a table tennis down here in the basement and uh, um Let's see what else. I love to go bicycle riding on the Greenway. You'll find some on my YouTube channel. You'll find some videos of me riding my bicycle on the Greenway, and I put the bicycle ride and put my music playing underneath it and make a a video of you can you can go for a bike ride with me and listen to my music. Um, and I love to eat, <laughs> like we all do, I think. But uh, anyway, and let's see what else do I like. When you talk about guilty pleasures, so many people talk about wine or chocolate. Or <laughs> yeah, I'm a chocoholic, and uh, I'm not much into wine, but uh, I do love chocolate, and it loves me too. <laughs> I have to work at that. Hey, listen, if it's it takes a lot of time and effort to put it there, so don't try and shake it off too quick, you know. <laughs> That's right. Yep. <laughs> well, tell me, Dave. I mean, if you were to try and summarize your fire in your belly in one or two words, what would they be? Musical inspiration. I think I am inspired by music, and I think uh, my inspiration also kind of results in more music. So it's kind of a, a symb symbiotic relationship between my music and inspiration. And it's uh, music has always inspired me, and uh, whether it was going to watch the movie Sound of Music and sitting there with tears in your eyes, watching and listening to the beautiful music or watching a, going to a beautiful concert or going to hear uh, the wonderful pianist Roger Williams in a concert, you know, how inspiring he was as a musician. And um, just music and inspiration are kind of the two, two key words that I would, I think I would use. Mm, nice what a it's beautiful to be able to create and enjoy and uh, yeah there's so much to it so david it's, it's been wonderful having you on tell us where can people get a copy of your book where can they find you where can they listen where can they track you down hunt you down stalk you any of the above <laughs> well i've made it very simple for them if you can remember my last name combs c-o-m-b-s uh go to my website combs music all run together combsmusic.com and on the website, on the left-hand side of the page, you'll see a picture of the cover of my book. And right below it will be a link that says, go to Amazon.com and you can purchase the book. Or you can, you know, you can, when you go there, it'll take you to the Amazon.com page for my book. 
You can get a paperback book copy. You can get an ebook Kindle. You can, or you can do an audio book uh, on Audible. And there's also a look inside feature on Amazon where if you click on that, you can actually, I think they put the first two chapters of my book in there. You can actually read the first two chapters of my book uh, on Amazon. And then on the other side of my webpage is a picture of my CD, Rachel's Song. And right below it is a link that says go to Amazon.com. And you can, there you'll find a way to buy the CD. Or if you want to download the music as an MP3, you can buy the album or a song at a time. Or if you're an Apple Music subscriber, you can stream the music. So, so you can get the book or the music straight from my front page of my website. And right in the middle of my home page, there's a link that says Play Rachel's Song. Now, when you listen to Rachel's Song, I want you to listen to it, hopefully, in a quiet environment where you can hear it all the subtleties in the recording, because what you're hearing is the original demo recording made in 1986 has not been remastered, remixed, anything. You're hearing exactly what I heard that night in 1986. And so, well, listen now, now that I've told you the story, listen for when the electric piano keys kicks in with the real piano and listen for those low strings and high strings and the horns and the and the key, the key change in the after the second verse. And I think you'll really have a deeper appreciation for the music when you do that. But yes, just go to my website, combsmusic.com. Wow. Thank you. And, and fair play to you. You've made it very accessible, so that's awesome. So is there, is there a final message you'd like to leave with our listeners today? Well, I would just like to be encouraging to everybody to uh, take time with your family and slow down a little bit in life and take time to, as they say, smell the roses and to listen to some good music and try to add some calm and peace and serenity into your life somehow or other through hopefully some of my music or other music that you enjoy. Wonderful. Dave, I really appreciate your time. I really appreciate all your sharing and your stories and really the experiences that you've had. So listen, thank you for the time and you've come on and thank you for your service. So we appreciate you until the next. Thank you. Thank you, Pete. I appreciate you having me on today. It's been a lot of fun. Well, that was another great episode of Fire in the Belly. You know, this really wouldn't be possible without a great guest taking the time to share their personal journeys. And boy, boy, sometimes it is personal. It's an absolute pleasure to have that. And then to hear the journeys that people have been on. We've loads more episodes coming up soon. And it's always a pleasure to have guests on. If you do happen to know anyone with true fire in their belly, please reach out to us so we can share their journey, lessons and successes. So all that's left to say is have a great day, live with fire in your belly and be the mightiest version of you.